Hello and welcome back to Podcasting as Praxis. I'm David, my pronouns are he and him. I'm James, and my pronouns are they and them. I'm Jamie, my pronouns are he and him. And I'm Alistair, and my pronouns are also he and him. Get well soon, Rob. Apparently Rob is unwell tonight and so will not be joining us. Uh, which is kind of good timing for Poor Rob because... drank water and died. <laughs> yeah, rip Rob. And yeah, tonight we're going to do a cultural committee um, it's it's an interesting one. It's a new movie. We're doing something that's like contemporary, you know, new <sighs> moves for us. We did a new um, book the other week, and today we're doing a new film. Yeah, we've got yeah. a taste for it now. We'll be, yeah, we'll be you know, dealing get... exclusively in like YouTube rumors about Star Wars before you know it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, um, can't wait for the next Marvel film that's coming out. Marvels, because why not? Um, but no, we, we decided we'd uh, we'd return to an old well that's just recently been replenished, and we decided we'd watch Plane, um, you know, brought to you by uh, King Leonidas and, uh, you know, Luke Cage, so should I, all be good, right? I assume it's the prequel to Airplane. F1. Honestly, I think I think the movie could have been improved by, like, the um, emergency pilot from Airplane. Leslie Nielsen, but... yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> okay, sure. But uh, no, so we, we watched Plane. And um, I don't know. Should we? Should we? Should we start with a basic summary of what Plane's about, just yeah, to kind of give um, people? It's Far Cry the movie, basically. <laughs> right. Jared, it, Jared Butler has to emergency land his airliner on an island in the middle of nowhere, and it turns out there's like a militia on the island, or separatists, or pirates, or something. A separatist pilot, pirate militia. Yeah. Um, I think would be the best way to describe it. Yeah, it's um. It's an interesting film, and I, I guess, I mean, we should probably start with the, the most obvious glaring flaw of this film, which is what the fuck is up with Jared Butler's accent right, so during the, it? Well, the opening scene is like him in an airport talking to his daughter on the phone. And Can I just chime in here? But like, the, they cast too horny a daughter, and I was getting the same vibes I got when I watched fucking Geostorm or whatever it was, where it was clearly a wife part, but they just inserted a daughter instead. And it was very, as he didn't like it, it was very fucking uncomfortable. Again, and this keeps happening in his films specifically. Yeah, but I, 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 was, I, I wasn't like particularly sure what the quality of this film would be. And I'd seen David mention that like 10 minutes into it, he was already fucking furious earlier in the day. Yeah. So I figured, oh, it must be, it must be pretty bad. And then when we were watching it, so he starts off, he's talking, and he's got what can only be described as his American accent that he uses yes. in all of the Has Fallen films and everything. And then just at one point, he um, he mentions, because he's going home for New Year's Eve, and he mentions he's looking forward to some homemade neeps and tatties, and then he's suddenly doing, like, a Scottish accent oh, from, from No, he's not. He's and I not. was like... No, he's not. I was like, oh, he's I not. totally understand why David was furious now. Yeah. So yep. his character is meant to be Scottish, but just sort of like the like flirts with the accent occasionally. <laughs> well, he's he's he, he, he he does the full Scottish shit. Yeah, and I hate it. it I fucking he hate also, it. Like listen for benefit, the actor himself, Jared Butler, he is Scottish, and I did fucking Paisley. I know. I looked up his actual speaking voice, and it's more Scottish than the accent he puts on in this film. Someone, it, we're generally watching someone dunching a gadget from like Castle in their own fucking native like yeah. accent. I'm it's so the, confused. The closest like um, 
the closest reference point for it really is if you remember Jason Statham's weird mid-Atlantic accent in The Transporter. Mm. <laughs> it's kind yeah. of like that. He just kind of like, like he can't decide. Like the character's written as Scottish, but he can't decide whether he's Scottish or not. Or I American hate to say this, not. but it's um, it's Grimdark Kanji Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate it so okay. much. Fuck it. The only two, he said Haggis, Neeps and Tatties once. Taddies, probably. I can't fucking remember at this point. Fucking oh, shit accent. Bad. And then at one point, at one singular point in the film, he replaced the word not with no. That's it. That's the two times he did anything that was remotely fucking I, translatable. I, 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 I want to know, did he lose a bet or is it just the director sucks? Like, I oh, generally can't make The director sense. was French, so probably just didn't want to interrupt him. In case it was he rude. also, uh, <laughs> David, you're also forgetting that he resolutely refuses to classify himself as English. Yeah. yeah, which is a mistake, as we've been over a million times on this <laughs> well, podcast. Yeah, like, yeah in, in fairness, that part actually kind of works for, you know, typical, stereotypical even Scottish kind of character. No, he fucking but... sound like that, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> David sounded more Scottish than the character in the film. Oh, His honestly, it was... defence. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the, and, um, uh, the first, like, hour of the film just sets up an, a, an absolutely dizzying array of cliches and tropes doesn't it pretty like, much yeah they've got they've got a fucking prison like a fugitive being transported on the flight who's dangerous and no one's allowed to speak to and they've got like um the co-pilot the co-pilot sticks a picture of his family to the like to the fucking the the yoke dashboard it, yeah yeah, mm. and like um you know talks about how he can't wait to see them again so you immediately mark him for death Jared yep. Butler, ex- like when the, when talking to the guy about the family, Jared Butler explains that his wife died. So like you know, the the chief stewardess who gets more lines than the others is set up to be the love interest by the end of the film. And just there's just on and on with all of these like textbook like action film like cliches that they set up, and I don't think they actually like paid off a single one of them, which was just an incredibly pleasant surprise. It like yeah, so th- this is where the, our own twist emerges, listener. Um, this film's fine. Yeah, an annoyingly this... competently put together film. Yeah, yeah, we, we we were all strapped in for like you know to get to comment on some politics and some schniff ideology. The movie's called really... Plain, dude. I mean, yeah, come on, yeah, yeah. It doesn't even it doesn't really have any ideology that I could pick up on. Like, there's just uh, other than like background generic, like they, we, they want to do a die hard. No, it doesn't. Like, there's yeah. no, there's no overt ideology. There's no racism as a thing that no, really blew my mind. I mean, even it's, as an action film with such like a, a sort of throwaway premise, you know, a plane lands on an island full of pirates. It, it's incredibly muted. It's it's almost dispassionate. It's just like filmed in a sort of sense that like, yeah, these are the these are the people involved, and this is what happens to them, and we're not here to make any kind of point or like. Yeah show anything off you know like hardly anyone actually dies apart from like tons like you know what i mean like tons of fucking pirate guys get mown down but none of the, it's not like all all the all the hostages are expendable you know they set up that one of the hostages is a particularly fucking abrasive dickhead and he's fine you know i think, like, he, I think he, he gets, gets shot at the end but like not not to death no yeah, he just, like, yeah, yeah he gets it, winged it's like yeah um, it's like it, it it honestly feels like they set out to just like not do all of the usual yeah. shit that we would roll our eyes at. Yeah, and, and I, I really appreciate it. I mean, like, when it actually, when it first kicks off, when he's on the phone in that abandoned building, and the guy hits him from behind, 
and they have that like wrestling match in that fucking yes. room. That that was like an incredible fucking piece of action cinema. Yeah. It was it was it was it done was... in a wanna. There was one point where you they might have hidden a cut, but it didn't look like it. So if they if they did hide a cut there, fair play to them. But it was it was brutal. It was like very down to earth, very realistic. There's not there's it was, nothing in uh... the way of like action movie fucking like nonsense in it. Yeah, and it was it was actual god. I can't believe I'm saying this. It was actually good, well done, shaky cam. Yeah, and like they have shaky cam on a few points throughout this film, and it's always good and well done. Yeah, which is just boom. Like my mind is completely blown. But I would there's not no have like um, there's no real sort of like action movie like uh, heroics anywhere in it. You know, like Jared Butler's the pilot. They set up that he has like he he was in the RAF, so they you know you think oh they're giving him the classic like. Yeah, he used to be in army, so now he can like kill men with his finger and stuff. But no, he's like he's a bit of a he's, he's a bit of a bruiser. He's a big guy, but he's like clearly traumatized by the violence. Yeah, like, I mean, he even it, says like all he did in, when he was in the RAF was like fly the freight planes. Yeah, it's so, um, it, it's good. It's like he 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 pairs well with uh, with Luke Cage. I know you said his yeah. name earlier, but I can't remember. It's, it's Mike, Mike, it's Mike, Mike Coulter. Coulter. Yeah. Um, yeah, he pairs well with him. He's he's Foreign Legion or something, isn't he? He's a murderer yeah. who l- ran away to join the Foreign Legion. And they don't even, like, they don't even explain the circumstances. Like, he just says that, like, you know, he was young. He, he got into some, like, trouble and then no one believed his story. And that's why he ran away. They don't ever explain why it was or, like, go into details or anything. It's just... It's just, everyone. Everyone behaves like more or less rationally, and like you would expect people to behave under those circumstances. There's yeah. no nobody like is is afflicted with idiocy for the sake of the plot. It's just and there's no like on the subject of villains on that point. Like so, the, the premise is they crash land on a small island, which is held by separatist rebels who the Manila government like is afraid to go in and deal with because they're that successful at fighting them. But even the separatist rebels like. You know, they, they, they capture foreigners, they hold them hostage, and they, they charge a ransom, and they execute them if they don't get the ransom. But the way they're actually portrayed is, like, I don't want to say sympathetic. No, but it's but not it's like... Not, com- they're, not, they're not, like, they're not um, demonised in any way. No, it's you, like, you, you know, do, they're obviously... Like, yeah, they're, they're obviously, like, they're obviously fucking dickheads, and they kill people, but it's not, like, it's not shown as if they do it for sport, or that they, like, no. particularly cruel rulers of the island or anything. It's, um... You get the impression yeah. that it's just like, you know, the way they make a living. Yeah, and it's like all the things they have them do are all things which in real life, like pirates, separatists and, you know, hijackers and kidnappers do. It, which is for, it's like, you know, nothing is too over the top. The um, the only time they directly kill someone that isn't part of like a firefight or something is a woman tries to run and they just like shoot her twice in the back and then her husband freaks the fuck out. And so, you know, to cow the other hostages, they just cut his head off. And it's like, it's brutal, but it's not, I, I just, it's not all over the top is the thing about it. Yeah. It's just very, like, building these guys as the for, villains kind of stuff. For an action film, it does feel fairly grounded in places. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and that's, like, quite good. I, I, I didn't I didn't hate this. It was fine. Um, I liked the little scene where they, they dragged, like, five of them out to ask them, like, for their name and their country. And everyone who wasn't American got the question right. Because <laughs> they all gave their name in the country. And the two Americans said, American, it's, that's not a country, you fucking idiot. 
<laughs> yeah, that's actually quite. I'd missed that. And very true to life, so I appreciated yeah, yeah, the kind yeah, yeah, of you know, the yeah. grounded feeling. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 really quite good, and it's like, I, I this is a problem for us listener genuinely. Yeah. Like, we, how how do we, we rag on in like a, a B plus film? Well, yeah, I'll tell you how we take a break, and we await um, Gerald Butler starring in Kandahar. <laughs> in Kandahar, Tom Harris brackets Gerald Butler, an undercover CIA operative oh, is stuck oh, deep in hostile territory in Afghanistan. <laughs> That's for shit. Yep, that'll be good. Yep. Oh, do you, even better. Directed by Rick Roman War. Yes. Same guy that did Angel Has Fallen. Yep. Oh, buddy. Oh, that's going to be a real... <laughs> Back in the saddle. <laughs> that's going to be yeah. a real fucking test then, isn't it? Because uh, I, act- I actually liked Angel Has Fallen. Of the three of them, that one was the, the better, yeah. yeah. I think we'll have something to talk about with that one. Oh, I, I mean, almost certainly. I can't, like... If that if if the fucking guy if the director manages to pull another blinder then like fair play to him but yeah get the I actually, back by the end of by the end of this fucking <laughs> film I actually was waiting to see the director's name in case it was it was that guy again but yeah. no, it turns out there are two people nope. two people capable of getting a good performance out of Jared Butler who knew and this is the thing apart from apart from his dodgy accent Jared Butler's performance is great as far yeah. as I'm concerned oh, yeah. he really sells it yeah he does um, really the good. Apart from the yeah, accent. Apart from the accent. The accent is atrocious. <laughs> yeah. But uh I don't know what the fuck he was like, doing, but like <laughs> Yeah. To to be crystal clear, I would not recommend people go out of their way to see this, but if it like no, it comes on or it's if it's no, I, I, I would actually you say know. if you're a fan if you're a fan of like action movies and or Far Cry, you should probably watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it's thoroughly entertaining, it, it, like. It is just a plot to Far Cry 3, except with a plane involved. But it's, yeah. it's good. It's competently done. It is competently executed, like, a lowbrow action film. And I don't say that in, like, to condescend to it. It's great. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, you say that, you say that to condescend to us. <laughs> I mean, when I was watching it, I actually thought, oh, I wonder how, I wonder how they're going to actually resolve getting off the island. And was genuinely interested to see how that played out. Whereas with the fucking Has Fallen films, for the most part, yeah. it was rolling my eyes at what, what I was currently seeing. They um they definitely I think they honestly went into it and kind of said we'd like to do it. like because the whole thing's set in New Year as well and I think the original draft of the script like we could do this as like a, a like a diehard it's like a Christmas film except it's New Year and then like when they were developing it they're like now we can't really do that and it wouldn't really go up against like a lot of the stuff released around that time of year so they kind of pivoted and what they've basically done is like Jamie said throughout they constantly set up things that you think are going to be tropes, but then actually use them in interesting ways. Like, um, there's a bit when they... So they, they managed to land the plane on the island. By the way, everything to do with the plane flight and actually managing to land the fucking plane after it's taken out in a storm is really well done. Um, I mean, if you we, just, say, yeah. we say that, but there might be, like, a fucking actual pilot who watches somewhere just screaming at the fucking screen the way you two oh, no, went off right. about the accent. So, so here's the thing. Like, <laughs> what happens in the film can't really happen. You can't really get the avionics taken out like that. But if you suspend disbelief for that one thing, the rest of it's actually fine. Like but you okay. can't suspend disbelief for that thing because you've got to suspend disbelief for the fucking fifty cal rifle later. Nah, well, nah, There's only so much honestly... disbelief you can suspend. <laughs> I prefer just not to know how a plane works. When is that ever going to be useful to me? So... Um, but yeah, like, you know, they, 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 they have the whole landing thing and in the process of landing, they'd go to dump the fuel and the right fuel tank doesn't dump. And so they land and it's like, ah, uh, and then there's a spark sh- uh, shoots out and like, oh shit, right, we need to get everyone off the plane. This thing might blow up. And you're thinking, all right, so we're going to take out the plane. So they've got, a- no, no, the whole reason the right fuel tank doesn't dump is so that at the end of the film, 
they can use the plane to escape after we repair the avionics. And it's like, fuck, okay. Like, that's, it's just it's just nice that you see a film yeah, and it's I not mean, doing everything paint by numbers. On the, on the subject of that, I think it would probably be a much more enjoyable watch the second time around because the first time, like, you just kind of, like, ex, do you know what I mean? You, you're kind of not really watching it so much mm. as... Um, like fucking waiting for things that that you expect to happen. Like, you know, you're just waiting for like, there's a lot of shots where it, it like the shot is j- just framed in a certain way that you expect something to like suddenly happen. You mm-hmm. know, like they hold, they hold the shot too long or they, uh, they have like the, the plane in the background and like the plane is just dominating the, the shot while Jared Butler's talking about how, oh, the plane's probably not going to explode. And it's like, it would be just, you know what I mean? Like a classic movie like hijink for the plane to immediately explode at that point when he says that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But uh, but no, they just uh, resist all the all the easy outs and tell a competent story instead. And with pretty good cinematography as well. Like uh, there's quite a few shots in the film, not just like the shaky cam stuff, but just generally really well composed, very visually interesting. Like you know, it's a lot of heart got put into this. Yeah. You can tell. We're oh, giving a lot uh, of credit. We're giving a lot of credit to uh, Butler as well, but like Mike Colt is really, really good in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we also can Very. we also just um, all tip our hats to the the scene where Jared Butler punches that uh, dickhead passenger in on another yeah. plane? Or in the flash, yeah, they have the, a... like when they're watching the video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they have like the crisis room, which has uh, Vargas from The Wire, if you know that actor, is like one of the guys in it, and they they make a comment about, oh, this guy seems like he's got a pretty good work history. Why was he flying like a dead end flight on New Year's Eve sort of thing? Like, well, he used to be in better work until the the incident. Then they show a video of like he's arguing with a drunk passenger. The drunk the drunk passenger punches him, so he just fucking punches him back and then chokes him out <laughs> on camera, and it's uh, you know, the guy. In room goes i like this guy and it's like okay yeah fine you get oh that. yeah shout, That's out, okay. shout out to that guy in the room as well who was um ted from cuffs which was a fucking yeah. like 1993 christian slater vehicle that we we, we used to watch a lot as kids mm. but but yeah I don't I, i've seen him I, in anything since so yeah this this film had a lot of like small actors you can like oh i kind of know him from x and uh they're all quite well used like I don't think there's any, like, truly terrible performances in the film either. There was nothing that made me go, well, fuck. The only thing that was a bit wooden was the tier one operators that get sent in to try and extract them was mm. a bit formulaic. I mean, it wouldn't, but... it wouldn't be a Jared Butler film without that. No, it did. wouldn't be. No, it wouldn't be. But yeah, this is about the limit of conversation we can get out of this one. The, um, the film was too okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was It was fine. So, uh... Yeah, so that's that. Well, um, I think that'll... that'll um kill both us and this fucking episode so let's call it there uh you can't get so yeah um i guess instead we're gonna pull the switcheroo on you listener and we're just gonna do a regular ass episode with an article but first updates in the world of labor jamie all right so i don't know if anyone people might not have noticed this because i don't think it's made much news but uh the labor party have been to use a technical term, playing a fucking blinder lately. <laughs> um, they put out like a, a shitty fucking dog whistle uh, advert claiming that like Rishi Sunak loves the pedos. Um, you know, he believes that people shouldn't go to prison. Um, and he even had his signature on, didn't it? But, like, yeah, yeah. Well, Rishi, Rishi, Sunak, 
Rishi Sunak believes that like people who adults who have sex with children shouldn't go to prison. And it's like, yeah, and who was who was in charge? Of, who was on the council that decided the sentence and like recommendations for that particular crime? I'm sure no one will bother to look that up in time for the next election. Oh well, uh, it's funny you should mention <laughs> that, Jamie, because there are minutes for uh, some meetings. Mm. That oh, what's this I'm reading here? Keir Starmer features quite prominently. I'm sure the... that was a different Keir Starmer, though. There must be hundreds of the fuckers. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like they put that out, everyone immediately went, and then they went, ah, oh, no, um. Like, uh, they just uh, that sort was a of different like, Keir Starmer. He went to another school. You wouldn't know him. <laughs> yeah, no, they put the advert out, and like everyone fucking went. That's a bit dog whistly. And the reaction from the Labour Party was uh, like chaos. Some of them like fucking uh, Keir Starmer initially wouldn't be drawn on a co- like to comment on it. Um, and an anonymous Labour source said, "Oh, so what? It's I think I can't remember the exact quote, but the to sum it up, it was so it's okay when like the Tories use dog whistles, but not when we do it." Was about the the long and the short of it. <laughs> Pretty much, um, yeah. And then it looked for a while like they were going to push the fucking shadow justice dickhead under the bus about it. I can't remember. Is that Steve? Someone? Uh, no one knows. Yeah, I mean, I'd, <laughs> I certainly fucking don't, but. Yeah, it looked like they were going to, like, push that guy under the bus. And then um, Yvette Cooper came out in, like, once it started, yep. once it looked like it was it was heading to a bus push, and uh, Yvette Cooper came out in, like, swinging to say that it was bad and wrong and they shouldn't have done it. And then the anonymous Labour source called her a fucking dickhead and said yes. she knew where the door was if she didn't fucking like it. And Thanks, then Luke. it turned out... Turned out the reason Keir Starmer had refused to... Because at one point they were saying as well that like the lead, the leader's office hadn't even seen the advert before it went out. And it's like, yeah, okay. But then Starmer did a piece in The Times, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it was, <laughs> it was the, the Mail was on Sunday, mail wasn't it? The Mail, yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, he, Mail online. Even worse. He did a, did a piece in The Mail def- like about how great the advert was and how uh, Rishi loves the fucking pedos, so he does. And then the mail paid him back for this, like fucking, you know what I mean? This act by writing an editorial about what he, what a prick he was for using dog whistle adverts to imply that the prime minister <laughs> liked pedos. So just bang Who up politics, bang up politics all round. Well done, like the sensibles are back in charge, etc. Um, but anyway, that's sent- that's that's like that's some minor league shit. Because the other thing is, remember last year when uh, Starmer went to that homophobic church. For some fucking was it Easter again? I can't remember. Yeah, Why not? Was some, he's like, not gone and done it again, has he? He has fucking gone and done it again with an entirely different homophobic church that supports uh, <laughs> conversion, conversion therapy. therapy. Yeah. So I think at this point it's like entirely undisputed and like fucking you know what I mean. I cannot get into any trouble at all for saying that Keir Starmer is a gaping fucking cunt and all decent people hate him with a fiery passion. I think <laughs> as he's proven, if I phrase it like. Do you think Jimmy Savile should have gone to prison? Keir Starmer doesn't. Then, like, you know, that's fine. Just imagine his signature floating somewhere around that. <laughs> the, uh, the annoying thing is, um, or funny thing, depending on your perspective, uh, they fucking didn't just double down on that advert. They quadrupled down on it. There's been four of the fucking things since then. You know, oh, I Rishi Sunak doesn't. I didn't realise they'd done four. Oh, no, they've done four. They've done four different Because I saw ones. the second one, which was about guns or something, wasn't it? Yeah, something like, like that. Do you think that fucking weird guy that turns up in the replies to everyone's tweets offering them like hot shooters, if you DM him, should like fucking be allowed to sell guns <laughs> at the local fucking church fair? Because like fucking Rishi Sunak apparently does. 
pretty signature much. was on it and everything. <laughs> yeah. So like the, the four adverts are. <clears throat> so there was the there was the child sex one. There was the guns one. Yeah. Yeah. What were the other two? So the other something two... with graphic design. <laughs> <laughs> graphic design is my passion. Do you think thieves should be punished? <laughs> what? Oh, uh, straight up punished as well. Not not. Not jailed, not rehabilitated, just straight up fucking punished. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like and the then, look of this skull? Yeah. <laughs> and then the uh, the most recent one is: Do you think it's right to raise taxes for working people when your family benefited from a tax loophole? Which is like they're kind of tapering off, oh. they're backing away. They're doesn't kind of going like a bit... fucking like doesn't you know what I mean? The king's cunt there actually have his own <laughs> tax loophole named after him. Yes. Yeah. Well, that yes. seems like fucking. That seems like that'll not come back to bite him on the dick before the fucking general. They actually That's the best the bit of it all of this, though. It really is just fucking stabbing a big fucking knife into the little scab that they had. Yeah. To try and like, just get rid of it. It's, New Labour uh, policy: yeah. a rake for every household. Oh. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be conspiratorial, but I suspect they like literally only had that one fucking racist advert ready to go, and then they've made up the rest to try and like pretend it wasn't just a like opportune racism so, they were doing so so i think you're right jamie and there's actual without being conspiratorial there's some small evidence of this which is that they subtly changed the graphic design between the first one and the next three um because the first one if you look carefully the rishi sunak does doesn't have any background on the lettering and there's a different lettering um on the card whereas all the ones that followed they have had uh, white on the background of rishi sunak does um, for the actual text, excuse me, um, and then they've had like a, a different, like slightly different coloring of lettering. I think someone else remade the template, frankly. <laughs> um, so I don't think you're wrong there. I think they decided. Was, it, oh, was there someone else? There's someone else who re- remade the template. That person, whoever it was, that put it on the fucking Guardian, so that it was like. Uh, do you think? Do you think adults convicted of child sexual offences should be sent to Guardian Opinions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hope we, I hope Welcome we get to the another... new section. Comment or kitty fiddler. <laughs> I hope we get another uh, like drop of Labour um, campaigning art, so that we we can all get the template ourselves. <laughs> it's definitely it's uh it's it's real normal times of the world's best campaign. You know. Yeah, I, um, it's just it's so it's so heartwarming to see politics done competently for once. You know, instead hey, of like, look. instead of childish left wing things like ideas and like fucking, do you know what I mean? Wishes for the wishes for a better tomorrow. We've instead got like just <laughs> fucking yourself in the arse constantly. <laughs> and the the best part though is that they've lost like anywhere between yeah. oh, like yeah. five and like ten points in the polls. Yeah. Like it's great. They could, just, they could have just done nothing and had a better result than this, but no, they they had to be flash. They had to give it a bit of whoosh. Do you know what I mean? And, well, they're not fucking... like forty points ahead or some shit, or just just around that, and now they're at like eleven points ahead, and that is all from a combination of doing absolutely fuck all and not doing absolutely fuck all. It's beautiful. Yeah. Like, the, the, there's no way anyone who was convinced a few months ago that Labour will walk the next election, how does it fucking taste? <laughs> the electorate are much like much like the T Rex can only see the opposition if they move. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's just fucking it's just fucking ridiculous. Like, and they approved. I forgot in the list of crimes. They also said that whatever fucking headbangers running the uh, 
what is it, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. whatever headbangers so running cool. that said. Yeah, whatever headbangers running running that said that like trans people shouldn't have human rights, and Labour have said no. We think that's that's a fair thing to put up for debate. So just fuck the lot of them. I, I wish they I wish them all the very worst things that can possibly happen to a bunch of like slavering bigoted dickheads. Oh, don't worry, Jamie. They're not alone. The Green Party women's group has like piled in to agree well, as both well. Both of them. That, that, <laughs> that that is like a that is like a cursed fucking electorate right there. Yeah. Ah, oh, should we should we perhaps back away from these sensible moderates and then look? To yeah, I've, I've heard enough governance? about the left and right wing of mums, net. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, would you like to know one country in which you'll never get a mums net? Sorry, I didn't. I didn't hear a word of that because David said like the left and right, and I just immediately pictured that fucking guy from the King's Man. <laughs> <laughs> That vault they were in at the, in the post credit scene was Mum's Net. <laughs> oh man, I would I would fucking it would slap if uh, Lenin was posting on fucking Mum's Net. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the kind Vladimir Ilyich would have had all of these people shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, James, you were saying. Yeah, there is definitely one country where you're not going to get a Mum's Net, and that country is Afghanistan. Um, tonight, listener, we're going to read you a little bit of uh, a little bit of investigative reporting that's been done on how things are going in the Taliban's Afghanistan. Because I promise you, you are not going to imagine how weird this is going to get. Um, I assume so like ninety five percent of all the fucked up shit here is exactly going to be because of the CIA. No, oh, it's so oh. much better than that. Um, oh, okay. So I'm going to. I'm going to be reading from two separate articles. Um, one has a bunch of interviews of like Taliban figures, and one is a, the the story of this German reporter who went into Afghanistan and just toured around the place and like you know met with people and kind of got a bit of an inside look. Um, so you know the the article is uh, well we'll we'll just get into it. The title is "The West Lives On in the Taliban's Afghanistan." Right. I hate it and already. It, <laughs> oh, no, it, it, it's pretty good. So it starts with our protagonist is in a cafe in Afghanistan eating rice pudding with some friends. I thought the new Jared Butler film wasn't out yet. <laughs> well, um, bear that in mind. Like, think forward to the future, uh, you know, Jared Butler film when, when I'm going through this. So, um, Sorry, I, can I change my prediction to um, this is going to be the Taliban is woke now? Our rice pudding arrived, and I Fuck. looked out the window. <laughs> oh the man, daytime, the Turks are going to be outraged. They don't think the Taliban can tell the difference between man and a woman anymore. In the daytime, Kabul is anything but pretty. Millions of people, no one really knows just how many, arranged chaotically in dense and disordered enclaves, sprawling endlessly with beige hovels nestled into the mountains that ring the city. But at night, the hills of Kabul can be surprisingly beautiful, unfolding endlessly, sparkling with the likes of amusement parks and Indian-style wedding halls, curiously reminiscent of Los Angeles. As we ate our rice pudding, the conversation turned to the things I was yet to see in Afghanistan. I had spent most of my time in Kabul and was preparing for a trip to the rural countryside. My Afghan friends were suggesting a few places to see. Bamiyan, which hosted what remained of the massive Buddha monuments destroyed in the 1980s, and Bandi Amir, with its extraordinary blue lakes. But I was in a more adventurous mood. I wanted to see something much less scenic, with none of the natural beauty of rural Afghanistan. 
and had a particular spot in mind. I'd passed it the night before on my way to have dinner with the grandson of a prominent warlord who liked telling me about Habermas. It was the bridge that the Kabulis called the Puli Sokta, the Burning Bridge. It traversed a certain stretch of the city's Kabul River, one that was really more of a dried and odorous riverbed. Stray dogs guarded a trickle of brownish water. It was not a pretty spot. But there was a reason people knew about it. Underneath the bridge lies a zone of concentrated and perfect misery. In the years of the US occupation of Afghanistan, the Puli Sokta became the most popular site for the city's drug addicts, who would go to the bridge to get high and, not infrequently, overdose and die. Sometimes the authorities would fish out the bodies, other times they left them to rot. Usually, their drug of choice was opium, Afghanistan's main export. In the late 2010s, the country produced 90% of the world's heroin supply. But increasingly, they preferred methamphetamine, which had made a disruptive market entrance in the 2010s. First, it was produced using cheap cough syrup and exported into Pakistan and Iran, where prices are higher. Then someone figured out how to manufacture meth using a wild mountain shrub called ephedra, which grows in central Afghanistan. Soon scores of Afghans were hooked. For years, Kabul was full of these addicts. One could find them in alleys, in parks, nestled in strange places inside ancient monuments. They are less visible now. The Taliban's made a point of rounding them up and placing them in drug treatment centres, where they undergo harsh methods of rehabilitation, forced detox, dunking in cold water. But you can still see some addicts smoking and trading drugs on the side streets and in the parks, even a few addicted children begging outside stores. A lot can be learned about a society, I reasoned, by talking to its drug addicts. So I suggested to my friends, what if we finish our tea, make a late night excursion to the bridge and interview them? So, so far you're thinking, right, okay, we've got a a misery tourist here doing a journal. Listen, no, James, I am waiting to find out what recipe this is. (laughs) <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to say though, meta-amphetamine sounds sick. <laughs> <laughs> did I did I say meta-amphetamine? <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I, I tell you what, you are not fucking retaking all that. No, I'm not. All right, sorry, <laughs> listener. It's meta-amphetamine now. <laughs> anyway, um, we, so we you're very good at getting a diagnosis for ADHD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, fuck, David, that one was targeted. Okay. (laughs) The Afghans with me represented a cross-section of the country's plugged-in youth. They described things as based and joked that people were triggered. When they were teasing each other, they used the term soy boy, which by now a couple of years was out of date by a couple of years from America. H-Bot's quite big in Afghanistan, it seems. (laughs) One was a YouTuber with a large audience in the Middle East who produces Arabic-language content about Afghanistan. Another was an ambitious entrepreneur born in a refugee camp over the Pakistani border and now a successful saffron exporter with side ventures in journalism and cryptocurrency. Another, <laughs> my first contact in the country, was an influencer whom I'd grown to trust over games of Counter-Strike Global Offensive. <laughs> that's, his, that's his peer group he's hanging with in Afghanistan. None of them wanted to go. The YouTuber had gone before for a video, but he wasn't in the mood to go tonight. The entrepreneur demurred as well. I accepted we wouldn't go that night. It's fine if you're scared, I teased. But the entrepreneur said safety wasn't the reason. It was just late. Wasn't Afghanistan, against all odds, now shockingly safe? Earlier that day, we had been talking about his relatives in the West and what they made of their new homes there. They were horrified by the alcoholism of the locals, the alienated families, the danger on streets at night, and the random disorder they said was so frequent in American cities. 
But my Afghan friend reassures me, that sort of thing, the random crime and violence, isn't a concern in Kabul anymore. The Taliban had dealt with it. Nobody is going to hurt us, dude, he said, curling his lips into a smile. We're not in San Francisco. And so this is, this is setting the tone. Yeah. Um, this is setting the tone for this whole story, which is basically Afghanistan under the Taliban is uh it's it's a weird 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 place and Ooh, what up it's your boy camel spider dick <laughs> <laughs> i mean the, the problem is you're not entirely wrong um so you know let's uh, let's cut forward in the article their government, still the Taliban to outsiders, the de facto authorities to foreign governments, and the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, in their own words, is without doubt the most unusual regime on earth. It is a near-perfect hermit kingdom. No country has recognised the Taliban government, with only a few countries operating embassies inside Kabul. The Islamic Emirate is denied representation in all global bodies, widely sanctioned, and shunned by multinational banks and corporations. The United States still offers a $10 million bounty for its interior minister, uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, whom it classifies as a specially designated global terrorist. Um, even as the government of a large nation, the Taliban acts as a secretive armed brotherhood, opaque to outsiders. Many of its officials still operate under their noms de guerre from the insurgency, though they no longer tend to bring their AK-47s to the office. The government does not have a constitution, written or, run, or unwritten, and there are no plans to create one. Um, the final say of all government decisions lies with the Emir, Prince of the Believers, the cleric Hibatullah Akundaza. Hang on. I'm going to try that again because, my God, Listen, that last name. I mean, Go right, on. okay, fair enough. I was going to say, you've already you've already butchered Nom de Gale, so... Yeah, I know, I know, but I'm just going <laughs> to barrel through, all right? It's been a long week. Um... Hibatullah Akundansa, uh, an alumnus of the Taliban's first government in the 1990s. He is, much like the Taliban's founding Emir Mullah Omar, nearly hermetic in his reclusiveness. He refuses to have his photo taken, such that there's only one undated image of him available. He communicates Good. policy... He communicates policy decisions. The David of Afghanistan. He communicates policy decisions through written letters from Kandahar, having refused to relocate to Kabul, and only makes a few public appearances a year. More irreverent Afghans will speculate, probably wrongly, that he's dead. Strangest of all, however, is the extraordinary degree of ideological sovereignty the Taliban seems to possess. It disdains the blind imitation of the West that, in one way or another, characterizes other Islamic regimes. Unlike almost every other government in the world, it makes no reference to democracy, representation, or the will of the people. Its mandate comes from more ancient things, conquest, negotiation, and the will of God. So, um, you know, the Islamic regime, uh, excuse me, the Islamic Emirate is emboldened to do more or less as it wishes. Of any Islamist government, it advances perhaps the most stringent version of Sharia law. Music has been banned in public. Images of sentient beings, even store mannequins, have been veiled or defaced. Corporal punishments, mainly public floggings, have been reinstated. Uh, most controversial of all, however, are the Taliban's policies on women's educations. Um, in early 2022, by the decree of the Emir, girls were banned from attending school from grades 6 through 12. At the end of the year, um, they extended the policy to cover universities as well. Um, so it's a mixed bag yeah. And, the, the, you know, the backlash hasn't dissuaded the Taliban leadership. Um, in one of his rare public appearances as Amir, 
He said that uh, the Afghanis Afghanistan is sovereign and not a place to fulfill the wishes of others. Um, he said, you are welcome to even use the atomic bomb against us because nothing can scare us into taking any step that is against Islam or Sharia. Or Sharia, excuse me. On walls throughout Afghan cities, the regime has emblazoned a slogan representing its remarkable confidence. First Islam, then Afghanistan. So, you know, that's what the, the top of the government is like. Um, and yet, these otherworldly aims stand in sharp contrast with the mundanity of everyday life in Afghanistan. Um, and the guy goes on to basically say he'd been trained to see it like, you know, he'd be seeing untold poverty and that the people he met would be like, you know, either terribly oppressed or like, you know, frothing kind of, you know, radicals, etc. Um, but what he discovered is that actually the Taliban government has a much lighter touch than people imagined. Um, and this is, you'll love this, David. In the bookstores of Kabul, at least, one can still find books by Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. Jesus Contrace <laughs> Yeah. Contraception and tobacco are available, and the Taliban has yet to regulate internet access like other Islamic governments. You can find gyms and restaurants that play Western music, sometimes with young Taliban guards as cautious patrons. Every woman wears a veil of some kind, but the blue burqas, uh, you know, that are associated with Taliban rule in the West are worn only by a minority of women. Um, almost every man in Kabul has a beard, but the Taliban do not bat an eye at the clean shaven. Um, ordinary Taliban guards are prohibited from enforcing rules about Islamic personal conduct. For now, the Taliban has mostly confined itself to the path of suggestion, like putting up signs in government offices praising men who choose to grow a beard. Um, more blunt confrontations, usually over insufficiently modest clothing, are left to the Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. But this morality police is severely understaffed. In the entirety of Kabul, a city with more people than Rome or Berlin, they have just 200 agents. Thus, they are often invisible, and this guy didn't see a single one during his entire time in Afghanistan. Um, and so what they've basically done is they've done very little to change the contours of everyday life. Um, you know, they, uh, once it took power in Kabul, the emirate declared a general amnesty and promised protection not only for minorities like the Shia, but also for employees of the previous government, including soldiers who had fought against it. And this even extended to high-level figures like Hamid Karzai, the republic's first president, who continues to reside in Kabul. Um, bureaucrats of the former regime have been retained in their posts, with Taliban Mujahideen installed above or beside them. The animosities of the warriors have simmered, at least for now. Um... He goes on to say, in a cafeteria in Islamic Emirates Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I enjoyed a simple meal of rice and bread alongside both holdover bureaucrats and the Taliban officials who worked beside them, thinking the whole time they'd been trying to kill each other a few years ago. Um, and, you know, in, in all areas of government, it's pretty much just continuous. On signs for government offices, Islamic Republic has been hastily painted over and replaced with a handwritten Islamic Emirate. Um, <laughs> for prosaic matters, um, unlikely to draw special attention from the Taliban clerics, government policies have just been carried over wholesale. Even visa stamps still read Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and carry the Republic's official colours. Um, and yeah, like... It's it's pretty much just they came in, they cleaned house, and they kept going with what's there, and they've been basically doing like British style public information campaigns to try and convince people to go along with stuff, and then occasionally just coming down like whenever the clerics notice something they don't like personally, like for example women studying or whatever, they'll issue a diktat. But in practice, most of the day to day stuff is uh, yeah, it, it it turns out it's surprisingly Western. Um, 
And so, you know, it, 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 the article goes on, it's quite long, and I'll link it for people to have a, a read-through. Um, but there's, like, lots of little instances where he runs into, like, former Mujahideen and talks to them and learns a little bit about them. Um, and let me let me kind of now redirect from the article a little bit more, because just, I can't, it, this is amazing. Presumably <clears> he's interrupted the reading of Michelle Obama's book. <laughs> Even the triumph of the Emir's programme represents only a fleeting victory. It harkens back to a rural Pashtun culture that is fading even in a place as anachronistic as Afghanistan. It has little to say to younger Afghans or even to younger Taliban, often more exposed to global culture and prolific in their use of social media platforms like Twitter or Instagram. I had observed these rank-and-file Taliban, toting AK-47s, sitting at traffic junctions, walking through Kabul holding each other's hands, with a sociological intensity. But among these mujahideen, much feared in the outside world, I found none of the hostility or the inflexibility I had expected. For all the ideological baggage that had been attached to them, the Taliban I met were hardly threatening, just scrawny teenagers and 20-somethings from the mountains of rural Afghanistan. Men who saw Kabul as a city of cosmopolitan wonders, who had joined what we saw as a war of liberation against an enemy whose technologies were so superior as to render them almost on the plane of aliens. They regarded the outside world not with hatred, but with a rich and earnest curiosity. They bore no ill will towards the West. As a guest in their country, they treated me with deep warmth. One evening, as a local friend and I stood on a hill overlooking Kabul, we watched some Taliban perform an Atan, traditional victory dance of the Pashtuns. A young Talib, overhearing us talking, approached us and asked in Pashto where I was from. I had come in on a German passport, which I gave to him for inspection. The Mujahid found this exotic and fascinating. He told me his name was Hakmal and peppered me with questions about my strange country. Did they speak Pashto there, he asked, or Persian? Something else completely, my friend told him in Pashto. Were the Germans Sunnis or were the Shias? Something else again, my friend said. All of this piqued Hakmal's curiosity. Could he come back to Germany with me, he asked, and see the country for himself? It sounded so fascinating, he said. Uh, I smiled. I hardly had the heart to tell him that the Germans probably didn't want him as a tourist. And, it, you know, this kind of sets the base tone because the vast majority of the Taliban's fighters are just like young guys brought up in, you know, fairly rural conditions, um, going into a war effort and then, you know, uh, being, well, they won. They got what they wanted. They, they managed to actually take Afghanistan back, um, you know, and Did as they? a cons Well, th this is the thing. Did they win? Um, so... The they, the guy goes on and gets plenty of meetings with them, um, and you know he, he goes on to say that there's a fragility in the Taliban's rule um, because you know they're trying to insist on an alternative vision of civilization that's not Western, um, but even in the Emirate, everywhere he went, he could sense a creeping Westernization, and so kind of coming back into it, I saw it above all else in many local Afghans whom I met and befriended. These were not Western liberals. They had friends among the Taliban and were quick to defend regime decisions I found abhorrent, like the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas. But these subjects of Islamic Emirate could not be kept from watching Stranger Things or Game of Thrones or Japanese anime. They had better knowledge of Breaking Bad than I did. On Twitter, they, like so many Afghans, were avid users, shared soyjack memes and called themselves Sigma males. <laughs> they... They talked about feminism, LGBTQ, and pronouns. Strange things to complain about in a country where women can't go to school. They were becoming Westerners. Culture War, America's most successful soft power export, was their induction. 
the younger members of the Taliban, online enough to follow Andrew Tate, were not immune. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh. <laughs> right. Um... And while these young men were still a tiny minority, they were also the bleeding edge. Social modernity is not kept out by the barrel of the gun. The internet is the ultimate vector of westernization. Status flows downward, and ostentatiously so in a country as peripheral as Afghanistan. The US was gone, but American culture was still a thing to imitate. In The Best Steakhouse in Kabul, the chef mimicked Salt Bay, and my friends joked with me about whether I could be in Manhattan. In the cafes, we could play Mortal Kombat while drinking coffee and listening to Western music. On Valentine's Day, the celebration of which is forbidden in Islam, peddlers in the streets of Kabul were selling heart-shaped balloons. It wasn't America, but it was trying. The Taliban won the war, but in the long run, the social modernity they so bitterly resisted is on its way. Even as my Afghan friends professed their conservatism and religiosity, they were yet to get married or have children, ages long past where their parents were doing so. The direction of things to come seemed obvious. For decades, the age of first marriage has been inching upward, um, and the literacy rate among young women, just 11% in 1979, had grown to 42%, though they are obviously trying to roll that back. The more time I spent in Afghanistan, the more I doubted that the Taliban had an affirmative social vision to counteract this westernization. The jagged conservatism, spiritually situated in the Pashtun hinterlands of the 20th century, was a purely negative answer. Beyond that, the Islamic Emirates seemed to offer nothing that could match Western culture for charisma. When they tried to emphasize normalcy and functionality, it was by showing that they, too, could meet Western norms. Um, it hadn't been enough to win long-term loyalty as people vote with their feet. Young Afghans see little future in the country, nearly everyone with a chance of getting out is trying to leave, and classes for English, German, and Turkish are full of young men and women trying to secure a foreign university scholarship. Signs advertising help with asylum cases and visa applications are easy to spot throughout the uh, urban centres. And at the slightest rumour, there's desperate Afghans basically heading for the airport. Uh, if they hear there's a chance, they might be able to get out of the country. So, you know, there's that like economic side of it. Um, and it's, it's definitely, like, as he goes through, it was pretty striking um, that no matter where he turned, everyone was just kind of the same. It's like, there were times he genuinely was like, it's like I'm in America. I, I, it's, I close my eyes and I'm in America from what I'm hearing in the background and from the conversations going on around about me. Um, and yet he does eventually get to have a chat with some real hardcore like Taliban people. Um, it wound up that I did encounter suicide bombers that Friday because he'd been basically there'd been rumors that there might be suicide bombs by like the dissident people in, you know, Afghanistan. And so he was advised not to like, you know, go to any markets or anything like that. But instead, he uh, he ends up he meets some Taliban former, you know, ready to take their lives suicide bombers um, and he ends up sharing tea and crackers with them at their group house. I'd been invited to interview them since I'd expressed a desire to meet some suicide bombers. As a matter of fact, these were inactive suicide bombers, not very successful if they're still alive, I joked with them, who had signed up during the war but hadn't gotten the chance to kill themselves. Even as the Mujahideen told me of the various methods for carrying out a suicide attack, the car bomb, the vest bomb, the rare turban bomb, they regarded me with curious eyes. They were members of the Haqqani Network, the only part of the Taliban classified as a terrorist group by the US. The network is known for its link to Al-Qaeda, its military sophistication, and its authorship of the most lethal suicide attacks for war. Thus, these men were among the Emirates' warrior elect. One was missing a leg, sacrificed in a skirmish in which five Americans had died. They hailed from the southeastern province of Kanzi, in an area known for producing suicide bombers. Accordingly, they had all signed up to detonate themselves during the war. 
now they were all bureaucrats in the interior ministry, which had been granted to, you know, their uh, leader's men. Uh, a solitary Delt... than death. <laughs> oh, you've got no idea, David. A solitary Dell computer sat in the corner of their room like an heirloom. It did not look like they had much use for it. What was it like, I asked, to make the transition from Mujahid to bureaucrat? The one who spoke the best English, he had given himself a moniker, Mr. Young, responded quickly. Very boring, he said. We are happy for peace, yes, but we miss the thrill of fighting. The feeling of the ambush, the moment of waiting for the American convoy, the excitement of a battle. We miss it. I asked if he wanted to go back to fighting. Yes, Mr. Young said, the moment we get the opportunity. We still want to martyr ourselves, and we would do it this very moment if we could. Now he was getting excited. Martyrdom, he said, would make me much happier than being a bureaucrat and working in the ministry. <laughs> On the word of uh, the leader, we would happily blow ourselves up tomorrow. Hearing his words, it was hard not to feel the sense that something had passed away. It was like listening to a cowboy reminiscing about the closure of a frontier. The Taliban had won their revolution and had everything they'd ever wanted, but now they confronted the truth for all successful revolutions face. Winning a state is a lot more glorious than managing one. The to dog their new catches world, the car and just yes. sits into a depression. <laughs> to their new world, a world of responsibility, a world that demanded a different sort of synthesis, they seemed to have little in the way of an answer. Um, soon my tea with Mujahideen was over. The suicide bombers walked me to uh, their car, offered me their WhatsApp contact information, and thanked me dearly for coming to Afghanistan. Mr. Young turned to me. If you ever want to stay with us, you're always welcome. He smiled and laughed. And next time, we can show you our weapons. So that's like the, the teaser, the introduction, if you will. But someone else sat down and got to interview a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, Taliban uh, figures and boy there is some stuff in this um so second article um this is this is you know interviews with a bunch of interviewees who in one way or another have been part of fighting as the taliban and have now settled down mainly in kabul um so we we start with uh a guy named omar mansur who's 32 uh he's married and the father of five and he's head of a group um and so he, he, he kind of gives his kind of background. Um, he, he was born in North Waristan, spent his childhood in Yag Yakhil, um, started his education in the village mosque, and then moved to a small madrasa that was built during the first emirate in a neighboring district. He was 11 years old when the Americans invaded. And because of that invasion and subsequent indiscriminate bombings and night raids, he was determined that the jihad against the foreigners was obligatory in Islam. And he'd only studied up to 12th grade of madrasa and then abandoned it and for the next 14 years or so went on to do basically holy war. Um, and so he, he did a, a whole bunch of tours of duty and it kind of goes into, you know, all the different kind of positions he did. Um, after the holy war, um, he was introduced to the minister of, and then they withhold the name of which minister, and he was told, they, they told the minister to appoint him somewhere. I was appointed to a grade three position as head of office. I haven't brought my family to Kabul. The rent of houses is very high for us since our salary is no more than 15,000 Afghanis, roughly 180 US dollars. It's fully sufficient for the area we're originally from, but not for Kabul. As soon as, God willing, I have a good salary, I will bring my family here. I'd never been to Kabul before. We heard from a radio and people who traveled there that it was constructed very beautifully by the Americans and by Hamid Karzai. But still, you know, it's not as beautiful as it should have been. The Americans brought untold amounts of money, but rather than spending it on building the city to a higher standard, most of it went into the pockets of various, like, you know, people from the previous administration. Yet, I assume it's the most gorgeous city in Afghanistan. 
In contrast to Kabul, our Patika seems very displeasing. It's like the Karzai government only spent money on Kabul. What I don't like about Kabul is its ever-increasing traffic holdups. Last year it was tolerable, but in the last few months it's become more and more congested. People complain that the Taliban brought, brought poverty, but looking at this traffic and the large number of people in bazaars and restaurants, I wonder where that poverty is. So Are you and the Taliban have ever received a parking ticket? Right in! Yeah, well, this is the thing. The two things he's complaining about is the quality of construction and the fact that he's got a bad morning commute, right? But it goes on. Um, another don't, thing I don't like, not only about Kabul, but broadly about life after the Holy War, are the new restrictions. In the group, we had a great degree of freedom about where to go, where to stay, and whether to participate in the war. However, these days... You have to go to the office before 8am and stay there until 4pm. If you don't go, you're considered absent and the wage for that day is cut from your salary. We're now used to that, but that was especially difficult in the first two or three months. Another problem in Kabul is my comrades are now scattered throughout Afghanistan. Um, those in Kabul, like me, work from 8am to 4pm. Most of the week, we don't get time to meet each other. Only on Fridays, if I don't go home, do we all go out to the park. Um... And yeah, it, it just kind of goes on. And he talks about the things he likes. It's nice and clean. You know, there's, el there's electricity, there's the internet, you know, there's taxis even at midnight. There's like, you know, good hospitals like and stuff, unlike the provinces where he's originally from. Um, and he likes it. The other positive feature of Kabul is its ethnic diversity. You can see an Uzbek, a Pashtun, and a, a Tajik, excuse me, living in one building and going to the same mosque. Um and he says, some people have a very negative picture of Kabul. What I experienced here in the last years, though, is that one can come across the perfect Muslim and the worst. Unlike villages where a lot of people go to the mosque to impress others, people in Kabul just go there just for the sake of Allah. Unlike the villages where people endeavour to be called generous, people here do charity for the sake of Allah. People know little about each other and so they don't need to impress each other. Um, and he goes on to basically say, like, you know, it, it's, Kabul's full of, like, really good people and really bad people and it just depends who you socialise with. So, uh, you know, there's your, there's your first little insight on what life is like for people who previously were doing, well, all of that. Stop um, trying to sneak London discourse into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. That's the thing, right? Um, the second guy call, is called Huzayatha, who's 24, and he's married, father to, he was a sniper. Um, and so we'll cut to, after the Holy War, we moved to Kabul and um, the leader of his like squadron was appointed head of a police district and later head of a directorate of the Ministry of Interior. I, along with a few other friends, were given off official jobs in the police district the day we arrived in the city, while other friends were sent to the Ministry of the Interior. It was the first time I ever saw Kabul. I haven't seen all the provinces, but people say Kabul is the most beautiful city in Afghanistan. Um, when I joined my group, I was full of the idea that Kabul would be full of bad people, but to be honest, in the last couple of years, after we met some of the people living here, I realised I was wrong. Of course, it's got plenty of negative aspects, like their support for the occupation, women not wearing proper clothing, youths flirting with girls, and cutting their hair in style even people in America might not adopt, but these are the problems that nowadays also exist in the rural areas. Um, at first, he goes on to say he was stunned by the size of Kabul, didn't know where to go, um, you know, didn't understand the complexity. Um, you know, he, he said at first he was really taken aback that the locals were, like, afraid to talk to him because they saw him as, like, just, you know, a Taliban. Um, you know, and he also says that when we came to our police district and saw the compound for weapons and security measures, it was unbelievable how he'd abandoned such places without firing a single bullet. Um, we were stunned by the cowardice of the former army and police. If even a very small number of them had tried to fight us, we wouldn't have made it to Kabul for years. Um 
And yeah, he just, he kind of goes through and he basically says that um, the things that really take him aback is like the savageness of people against each other. Um, you know, in particular against women. Um, dozens of women approach the police station on a daily basis and register their complaints. And he says they're victims subject to different forms of brutality. The head of the, you know, um, Haswell and other Mujahideen pay special attention to solving their problems. During the first days when women approached us, many Mujahideen, including myself, were hiding, were hiding from them because we never in our whole lives have we talked to strange women. In the days that followed, the head of Hansa instructed us that Sharia does allow us to talk to them because we are now the authorities and the only people that can solve their problems. And he basically goes on to just say that, yeah, like life in a big city is weird, man. It's like you're living, you know, uh, right next to people and like you're all up in their business, but you don't really know anybody. And, um, you know, I I'm getting like introduced to weird things I don't like. Take this, for example. I've made friends with three guys who are from our province but have been living here in Kabul for more than 15 years. We sometimes go to Kabul Zoo and a few other places. To be honest, every time I go with them, they pressure me to play and listen to music in the car. At first I was resisting, but now I have given in with the one condition that we turn off when passing through security checkpoints because many other Taliban don't like it. And it's bad for a Talib to be seen listening to it. Um, and yeah, he just, he just kind of goes on. Like, yeah, I moved here. It's really weird. Like, uh, I'm now in a big city and I'm not sure I like it. And yeah, just a young guy having to deal with, like, being brought into, uh, you know, a city like Kabul and finally getting to see it for the first time. Um, by way of kind of contrast, uh, the, the next guy we got here is, uh, well, like, we'll, we'll see what you make of this particular one. Um, this guy's Cameron, he's 27, he's married Favre too, he was a deputy group commander back in the day. Um, gets appointed to the Ministry of Interior. Um, ha sort of happy with my job, but I often miss the time of jihad. During that time, every minute of our lives was counted as worship. Um, blah, 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 blah. Nowadays, people are busy gaining wealth and fame more and more in this worldly life. Previously, we were doing everything for the sake of Allah, but now it's the opposite. Then, first priority of many is to fill their pockets and become famous. Um, and he goes on to say that, you know, back in the past, they only had each other. They had like a motorcycle, a kind of walk walkie-talkie and their Moscow madrasa. Um, now, many of us have caged ourselves in our offices and palaces, abandoning that simple life. Um Anyway, sometimes I sit with the employees of a former regime who still come to their jobs. They show themselves to be very good people and sincere to the Emirate, but I can tell you that in reality they hate us. I don't exactly know why, but I've identified some possible reasons for this past year. First, these employees were doing business in the ministry, making illegal wealth through corrupt practices. Second, the Americans invested in them heavily, and they became so westernized they now hate our real Afghan culture and Islam. Um... When the Emirate came, their illegal business and corruption vanished entirely and they have nothing but their salaries. They're no longer able to make millions of Afghanis. So you tell me, why shouldn't they hate us? And he then goes on to just basically say that uh, things are so much more complicated, that they're constantly being tested by cars, positions, wealth and women. Um, many of our Mujahideen, God forbid, have fallen into these seemingly sweet but actually bitter traps if they got their old comrades whose shoulders they cry upon. And you, you kind of get the idea. He's like this staunch guy who's trying to kind of cling to the conservatism of it, but it's just not working for him very well. Um, and yeah, so, you know, you kind of, you, you get an impression of what these guys are like. Uh, now, there's one particular quote um, I want to read you, and it's from this next guy, because this, I, I think we'll, we'll make this one the last one, because I don't know what else I can possibly say at this point. Abdul Nafi. 
who is married and again Favre too was previously a fighter um you know he was basically uh you know on the second week of every, of the, the winning of this whole thing he made it to Kabul hadn't been there before um and you know he was assigned basically uh, to assist uh, a key figure who was in the ministry of some name withheld um the rest of his team were all strewn about all over the place. Um, this guy took him in personally and and basically made him like his personal assistant. Um, he told me he'd point me to a job in a ministry and register with two other friends as official guards. He said I'd easily learn how to work. Thus, I was appointed to a grade four position as executive director. And in the meantime, I continued my job as his guard. I live with him in his house. It's a big villa as, um, that he's been given. He's always telling me to bring my family and live on one of the floors, but I'm hesitant because of the cost. When I started my job, I didn't have a clue how to deal with the tasks. Um, my boss told me to take a computer course and an English course. Almost four months ago, I started both courses near our ministry. I learned many computer programs during this, pro this period. Not only that, I quickly learned the tasks related to my job. All the staff have been very happy with my work. Um, people blame the Emirate for all the professional people fleeing the country, but I, when I see the employees in our ministry, they're neither professionals nor educated. All of them have been appointed through connections and know very little about their jobs. Sometimes I miss the jihad life of the good things it had. Similarly, in the beginning, I yearned for village, but now I've become accustomed to my new circumstances. Get this. In our ministry, there's very little work for me to do. Therefore, I spend most of my time on Twitter. We're connected to speedy <coughs> Wi-Fi and internet. Many mujahideen, including me, are addicted to the internet, especially Twitter. He's just like me for real. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. It's, it's you, it's you, Alistair. He he's a spreadsheet pusher. You know, he he he's like working in a nominal executive position, doing nothing but sitting on the internet all day. At least this guy's and, seen uh, like seen some of the country. You know, well uh, that's the thing, right? You know, at least at least he gets out and about from time <laughs> to time. <laughs> at least he got to do jihad. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it, it's just, it, it's great. And the, the the very final guy that got interviewed, um, I like I won't bother reading it because mostly he just like meanders along. But his main thing is about how this old guy in a Corolla pulled up next to him um, as he was like looking for a passerby to pick him up. And he thought he was going to pick him up, but he didn't. Instead, he, he was like mockingly saying, ah, oh, now the entire government's in your hands. So you don't need help. Drive yourself, you bum. And like drove off essentially. And he's like, what? I, I, people can do that now um, and yeah so the, the story of modern Afghanistan is essentially the story of a nation that's flirting with westernization, getting the Andrew Tate version and all of its former fighters are like bored and wanting to die in office jobs 9 to 5 spending all their time on Twitter um, to, to get to the point uh, and to kind of bring the story to a, a full circle, the guy in the first article who wanted to go visit the bridge, turns out he did go visit it, only to find out that it had all been cleaned up, and that's why his friends couldn't be asked going out there anymore in the middle of the night. Bit of an anticlimactic result. Um, so yeah, there you go. That is a glimpse of modern Afghanistan, the country which has, in one way or another, been dragged into the future, and they hate it, and they just want to return to tradition. Sounds sounds like a story of like moderately functional bureaucracy. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like it's it's just they're trying to make it work. They have bosses who occasionally pass down insane diktats um, and want them to go on like strange, like you know, uh, crusades against particular moral issues. And otherwise, they're just trying to live their lives as best they can, but they can't pay the goddamn rent. 
we really are in a truly globalized world. <laughs> I swear there's an analogy in this. If it feels a little thin, all I can say is we, we were meant to be talking about Jerry Race War, but um, sorry, sadly, the reality is not as racist as, you know, is made out to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll just need to accept the... a substitute of some some talking about Gerard Butler and then some talking about Afghanistan until um, some point in June probably we'll finally see the new film. Yeah, the film the film adaptation of these two articles is going to be phenomenal. <laughs> I guarantee you, it'll have none of the stuff we've just described. Like, if I tell you what, if Jared Butler has a scene where he's in Kabul playing Mortal Kombat on an arcade machine, then yeah. sure. If, like, if it has that, do you know what? He's fucked us again because we can't yeah. talk about that for a full fucking episode. Jared Butler kicking in a door in an office, and there's just a like a, a young Taliban sat in front of a fucking spreadsheet. <laughs> Oh, man. Jared Butler getting in a firefight and his enemies are just shouting CSGO phrases. <laughs> getting teabagged when they fucking, yeah. <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's a different word than CSGO phrases, but... <laughs> well, you know. I can't, oh, I can't get over the fact that they're just, like, all calling people soy and all the rest of it. It's like, god damn, we really... Actually, do you know what, that's a point. Hang on a wee second. Um... Contact the Hague. <laughs> you can email them. Excellent. That's fine. Oh, fucking hell. Wait, this, this, this is the thing I was going to say as well. I mean, I, I can interject a little bit earlier on with it, but, like, did, did they win? Like, they really didn't in some way. This is, this is what the culmination of the whole fucking hearts and minds shit is isn't it it's, it's not actually mm-hmm. about making fucking life and times easier for soldiers there and then it's about fucking injecting soft power like as you're a fucking occupying force and leaving that as your your legacy like it's it's pretty fucking despicable in its own right and i hate it it's also just like the fact that so much of it is just like, yeah, we're just going to keep doing what the previous government did until someone higher up shouts at us to change it is like the most relatable thing in the world, frankly. I mean, yeah, there is that. Huh. Well, it could be worse. Um, it could be Britain. So. <laughs> right. Right, how about we round this episode off with um, some, some cussed comment or commentary Yes. I mean, is it about Afghanistan? That would be very thematic. Um, no, it's not. No, because uh, just getting this shit in like an open format is fucking brain destroying enough, rather than hunting for very specific stuff. Okay, okay. Um, in that case, is it about some insular nation with archaic practices and uh, media and like government class that insists on backward facing policies despite a slightly more progressive and open population? I see what you yes. did there. Mm. <laughs> hey Google, show me the most fucked up comments about Afghanistan you got. <laughs> no, that's too <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> Opening express.co.uk um, <clears throat> Sir Keir Starmer needs a huge swing from the Tories to Labour in England to secure enough MPs to form a majority government but the gradient of the mountain gets a bit less steep with help from Scotland. Labour should not waste effort trying to appeal to hardcore supporters of independence. 
that segment of the public who will hopefully SNP, pretty much regardless of what it has done and who leads it. Labour has a decent prospect of profiting from tactical voting by Tories and Lib Dems prepared to lend their votes to Labour candidates in seats where they are best placed to beat the SNP. Comment or commentary? Commentary. Yeah, that feels like commentary. It, it, yeah, the, the cursed, the cursed effort to make Scott Lab a thing, is uh, yeah. That was commentary. It was Andrew Ronsley in the Guardian, and I just the only reason that I've picked this out that was fairly weak for a comment or commentary. Comments were opened on this article in error and have been removed. The decision to open comments under any article is based on a number of considerations as our moderation facts explain. Oh. Yeah, will we get shouted at for this? Yes, no. We fucked up. <laughs> oh God, we let, we let the proles actually say something about our Even reporting. The Guardian is sensible enough to not do fucking Scott Paul. <laughs> all uh, right well, david point made well it's it's good to know that uh labor are close enough politically to the tories and the lib dems that they will feel very safe in lending their votes to labor yeah, yeah. okay next up woke virtue signaling hit a new low this week with the breathtakingly smug self-satisfied announcement by nearly 150 solicitors and barristers that they will henceforth refuse to prosecute equal protesters accused of breaking the law. These same lawyers, however, will continue to defend paedophiles, rapists, child killers and domestic abusers. They are utterly unable to recognise the inherent contradiction involved. Comment or commentary? Commentary at Richard Littlejohn. Comment. Yeah, I wanna, <clears throat> I'm going to say comment. Spiritually, comment is closer. That was um, Richard Maidley in The Express. <laughs> Richard Man. fucking Maidley. Christ alive. He's not a journalist. <laughs> He's commentary at. Is he, though? My man has a regular column, unfortunately. What? Yeah. Yes. I'm fairly sure we've read something of his before on comment commentary, actually. But I have um, the exact same reaction. I think you probably just let it slide right off you because it was a fact your brain didn't want to fucking imbibe. Mm. It do be like that. Mm. Sir Keir has consistently put his career ahead of anything else. Today he tells us Mr Corbyn is not fit to be a Labour candidate, yet he was perfectly willing to devote himself for years to making the man PM. Other Labour MPs refused to serve in Mr Corbyn's shadow cabinet, but Sir Keir accepted the vital job of being in charge of Labour's Brexit policy. In 2018, he told voters he was previously wrong to doubt Mr Corbyn's leadership qualities. In 2019, he told Andrew Marr, I am 100% behind Jeremy Corbyn, and when Marr put to him the view of Dame Louise Elman that Mr Corbyn was a danger to the Jewish community, he replied, I don't accept that. Now he says he is proud to have tackled the Corbynite anti-Semites. After the 2016 Brexit vote, he pushed for a confirmatory vote, a rerun referendum, but he now says he accepts the result. And in his leadership contest, Sir Keir ran on a left-wing platform, attacking those who criticised the past four years under Mr Corbyn. As leader, however, he has tacked far more to the centre. The problem with someone who says whatever he thinks people wants to hear is that no one has any idea what he would actually do in office. 
As it happens, I agree with the direction of his words and deeds since becoming leader, but I have no idea if he would blow leftwards again if the pressure came from his party. Comment or commentary up. Uh, this I'm was written say, by a slime mold who has uh, just turned eighteen years old and learned how to vote. I'm going to say this is um, this is an unnamed Labour source. <laughs> I feel like comment. I think it's comment because just because of the way they, they like the really petty way they said Sir Kier so often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was commentary. It was Stephen Pollard in the Express. Oh wow! <laughs> I, I sense a theme here. Oh, uh, so yeah, eat shit, Starmer. That's um, that's the guy who you've been trying to seize the vote of for like what, three years now or some shit. Hey, <laughs> hey, how did this scorpion get on my back, and why am I in this river? <laughs> <laughs> okay. The point is about two conceptions of politics. One is a game where victory goes to whichever side most thoroughly destroys the credibility of their opponent. The other is a painstaking, problem-solving exercise where success is eked out on slivers of common ground between apparently irreconcilable forces. The problem-solvers see democratic politics conducted within recognised parameters of decency as society's guarantee against civil strife. The game players treat politics as an extended metaphor of all-out war. Sunak and Starmer style themselves as problem solvers, as professionals and pragmatists, as antidotes to incompetence, tribalism and dogma. But they campaign as game players. Starmer deploys attack ads casting Sunak as an apologist for paedophiles. The flagship of Sunak's legislative programme is a bill with no viable purpose except to prove that conservatives will be more reliably hostile to immigrants than Labour. Maybe this stuff works. Comment or commentary up. Comment, this is um, this is the this is the same slime mold, but right in the comment section. This is someone yeah. who should just shut the fuck up and fuck off, quite frankly. Because this feel you are this you are the closest like, to correct. Uh oh, that's a commentary then, isn't it? It is. That was Raphael Bell in the Guardian. Uh, oh, boy, oh, yeah. there was a clue Absolutely. right there. The game oh. players treat politics as an extended metaphor of all-out war. David, you're expecting us to have actually paid a slight should, bit of fucking the attention real, to the those. real clue. The real clue should have been where he was saying the the game players all out war thing and the other thing, which is irreconcilable differences, as though these are two separate things. <laughs> uh, if the uh, if the fucking like if the fucking quote had started with "Ah fuck, call me an ambulance," I'd have got that right away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, okay, last one. Britain's approach could be ugly, but against the foe as callous as the IRA, it was brave and necessary. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Comment or commentary wow. up. <laughs> wow. Oh, holy fucking shit. <laughs> is this your da? <laughs> Writing in the Times. This is, this is... Oh, man, many different directions this could go. Um... Murdering children, murdering uh, disabled old, um, adults. Yeah, these are, these are all wholly necessary. I'm gonna say comment out of more hope than expectation. I'm mm-hmm. gonna say I'm gonna say commentary out of sheer bloody mindedness. Yeah. Mm. That was commentary. It was Leo McKinstry <laughs> and the Express. <laughs> Fucking hell. 
that's actually that's half of the subheading of the the entire article. Um, Britain's approach could be ugly, but against the foes callous as they are, it was brave and necessary. The 25th anniversary of the Good Friday deal is a welcome monument to its success. <sighs> yeah. So, there you go. Um, oops, all commentary. Yeah. Right. <laughs> How tricksy. These perfidious yeah. Scots breaking the rules of a game. It's my game. There's no rule that says like a dog can't play basketball, though, so... Yeah, true. This is true. This is true. Well, I think that'll that'll um that'll do. kill both us and this fucking episode, so let's call it there. Uh, you can get bonus episodes on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash practice cast. You can see us do some streams sometimes. Keep an eye out on that. It's usually Wednesdays and Thursdays. That's twitch.tv forward slash practice cast. And you can get merch, um, which is praxiscast.tml.com. Also, I should say, with the Patreon, you also get access to the Discord, where we have people in there who, for some reason, post. Uh, you should join them, keep them company. Yeah. Convince them otherwise. Yes. Tell them what folly they have made. Um, only you can save them. Yeah, they like to pass the traumatic brain injury around, so, you know, why don't get in the circle, join in. Yeah, yeah. You, you too can join in, in with saying, fuck, what have you done to me? Just today, someone asked, why do they pay us to hurt them? And, you know, you can join and find out why. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On that note, bye. See ya. Bye. Bye. bye.